If you do have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to, to Judges chapter 9. We are at the end of our study of Gideon. We spent several weeks studying his life, and uh, today we'll be bringing all that to a conclusion. Abimelech is Gideon's son, one of his sons. And he, he is the subject of chapter 9. The Bible is full of people who become examples to us. They, they show us how, uh, how to live. They teach us wisdom uh, by seeing their examples, the mistakes they made, the, the right decisions they made. And the Bible is full of those people. Uh, when my big brother would get caught doing something wrong, um, you might think that I was thinking to myself, well, that was really bad. I never want to do that. But in reality, I was just paying attention to how he got caught so that I wouldn't make the same mistake and get caught too. But uh, that is not what an example is meant to be in the Bible. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul was uh, reflecting on what happened to the Jewish people that perished in the wilderness after they left Egypt and they, they got all the way up to the promised land to Canaan and then they... They didn't have the faith and courage to go on in and trust God. And so they stayed in that wilderness and they, they all perished there. And he was reflecting on that and he was thinking and he says that what happened to those people uh, becomes an example to us. And the example there, and it literally says in verse 6, that they are examples uh, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then down in verse 11, he'll say it again. And he'll say that these things were written for us as a warning. Our parents are examples, uh, both good and bad. In chapter 9, there's going to be a very bad example. But there's also a very good one. But unfortunately, uh, the bad one is going to stand out. He's going to have all of the attention, and that's because the entire chapter is devoted to this bad example. And it's also going to stand out to all of us because we are very familiar with this bad example. We see it play out in our lives uh, in varying degrees all of the time. And if we're honest, sometimes even in ourselves. So it's a very familiar bad example. Now, last Sunday on Mother's Day, we turned to the marriage of Othniel and Axa in chapter 1. And as we considered the, the chain of events, the things that happened with this couple, we recognized that God's hand was involved in everything that was occurring. Caleb had been promised to enter the promised land, and he was able to do that. And he'd been promised Hebron by Moses. And so when Moses passed away, Caleb reminded Joshua. And of course we saw Caleb receive Hebrew in chapter 1. Othniel received a godly wife. And Axa received a godly husband. We saw those couple receive their inheritance. They, they had children 
children are inheritance and they, they receive land. Something that uh, we call that a heritage. It's something that's, that's passed down. The things that we pass down, uh, all of us have a heritage. And the things that we pass down are, are physical, but they're also spiritual. Because whether we like it or not, we influence the people that we are around in good or bad ways. But in the heritage of chapter 1, what we were looking at is the, is the land that they had been given. It was land that God had promised them. And He promised that they could have it forever. And so it came, became something to pass down to the next generation. And that generation could pass it down to the next generation. And as long as they had that land, it would always remind them of this promise that God kept and that this, of this relationship they have with Him. So it was more than just ground. It was very uh, relational with God. And so we saw that this, this couple that, had, that were following God received an inheritance, a rich one. They, they had children together, they had land, and they had their faith in God. And of course, we're talking about the sovereignty of God and how He worked all of these things out and those, as those events unfolded. And it wasn't over yet because Othniel would turn out to end up being the first judge. Well, like I said, whether we like it or not, all of us will leave a heritage. Something that other people receive from us. Good and bad. And that means that our lives do matter. Our lives actually do have a purpose. And no matter where you're at in life, what stage of life you're in, you still serve a purpose. We remember uh, Gideon and, and the heritage he left. And uh, after the battles was all over, the people were so thankful for Gideon and he was a, a leader and he had, he'd led them in, in great ways. And so they asked him to serve them, to, for them to, they asked him to be their king. And he declined that. He says, I'm not going to be your king, and my kids are not going to be your king. God is your king. But we can tell that he really didn't mean that inside because of the way he behaved. So your mouth might be saying one thing, but your life says another. And that's what happened with Gideon. He, all of these guys had these spoils of war, and he took a collection from them all for it. He took part of what they had all got. Who does that? You know, that's kind of a government kind of a thing. It's something a king would do. And uh, he had multiple wives. And so this was uh, different kinds of political alliances that he was making with people. He had 70 sons and multiple wives. He erected that ephod up in his hometown. And from what we know about that, would, uh, people would come to him for information, uh, kind of like an oracle for God. And... Uh, Probably in other circumstances that we know of, not necessarily it doesn't say this with Gideon, but he may have been collecting money. You know, people would come to him. And so it gave him power, authority, and it put him in charge in some ways in people's lives. And I hate to say it, but kind of like a glorified fortune teller. And all of, all of these women he was marrying, he had a concubine that lived in Shechem, and he had a, a son with her. And that is Abimelech. 
And Abimelech's name, this, this was a Canaanite woman, and uh, they named, the, now Abimelech, I've heard it's pronounced Abimelech, but I can't say that, so we're not doing that. But uh, the, that Melech is, is a, a, a pagan god that was worshipped in many of these Canaanite cities that have been unearthed, you know, like uh, Ebla had this massive cuneiform library that they found there, and uh, Ugarit and all these other places. The, this was a god that these people worshipped, and so this boy is named after that god. And so his name actually means, my father is king, Melech is my father. So it was uh, bad. Now, to just nail, drive the nail in, that Gideon set himself up as a king and acted as if he was a king. In chapter 9, we're going to find out that everyone expected Gideon's kids to continue serving in the seat of authority. And so it was kind of like a dynasty, an, un, an undeclared, understood dynasty. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see three things, and we'll look at them at the very end, but one of them is we're going to see our sin nature in its raw form. And we're going to see what it means and looks like to sow and reap. And then finally, we're going to see that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over these ambitions of men. And so, if you will, I'd like to show you the map again. You guys love maps. Everybody's always calling me during the week and saying, will you do more of those? And I always promise to do that. So, well, we've been studying Gideon, and before that it was Deborah and Barak. And so by now, you guys have got to start getting a pretty good idea of Israel in this period because we've looked at these maps for so long and studied the Bible together and it's just uh, we can't even help it these maps are starting to sink into our brains you got the Sea of Galilee and then just to the left of it and down you can see where we've been that Valley of Jezreel um, you can see Mount Gaboa and that Kishon River that runs out to the Mediterranean and it flooded and that storm and it flooded that valley um, you can see Beth Shan. We studied that Wednesday night. That's where Saul's body was hung up by the Philistines. Well, this morning we're a little bit further south. We're down there in Shechem. And this is a valley. The city is in a valley between two mounts or hills. There's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And this is where we're at this morning. And uh, this is a, another picture that will help you see that. And uh, they've identified ancient Shechem there, the ruins of it. And in, uh, in the New Testament, the Samaritans had their own temple. It was up there on Mount Gerizim. And you can see there that the ruins are still there today. But there's those two hills. This location is rich in biblical history. A great deal of things happen right there. And we're going to be looking at one thing that happened today. So Shechem is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, let's go ahead and begin reading. Uh, do I have, uh, which one's up there now? 
Which one is it? Okay, how about that one? This clicker is going too fast. There, that's the one. All right, let's begin reading in verse, verse 1 of chapter 9. Abimelech, son of Jerubel, that's Gideon, went to his mother's brothers at Shechem and spoke to them and to all his maternal grandfather's clan. He said, Please speak in the presence of all the lords of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. His mother's relatives spoke all these words about him in the presence of all the lords of Shechem, and they were favorable to Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal. And Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men with this money, and they followed him. And he went to his father's house in Oprah, Ophrah, and he killed his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. And he did this on top of a large stone. But Jotham, the youngest son, survived because he hid himself. And then all the lords of Shechem and, and, uh, and of Beth Melo gathered together and proceeded to make Abimelech king at the oak of the pillar in Shechem. Abimelech's mother was a, a concubine. And what that means is she was essentially one of his wives, but she didn't have the status. And she didn't live in Ophrah with Gideon, she lived in Shechem with her family. And so Abimelech is approaching these people. Now, Shechem, uh, we're not just going to go crazy with the history, but when Abraham first came to Shechem, he built an altar to God there. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 12 that when he came there, that the people that lived in the land were Canaanites. So they weren't followers of God. And then years later, when Jacob came to Shechem, uh, he also bought some land, and he built an altar to God too. But at the time when Jacob was there, there was a man by the name of Hamer, and he was kind of like the king. He was Hamer the Hivite, and he had a son that was named Shechem. And as you may or may not be familiar, Shechem uh, forced himself on Dinah, who was Jacob and Leah's daughter. You may remember the, the tragedy that follows that story. So as we come to this place now, it is still inhabited by those descendants. These are the people. They're Canaanites. In verse 4, we find out that they worship Baal. And what Abimelech is proposing is taking the dynasty, the seat of authority, the control that Gideon and his sons would have had, those Israelites, take it away from them, and let's put it in our hands. Typically, or actually his hand first. And this appealed to them. And it tells him that uh, they 
put the, he put to death his brothers on top of a large stone. And so this means it was a public execution. And so in one way or another, those worthless men rounded up his brothers and they brought them to this place and they were executed. Bimlech is not a judge. He is not appointed by God and he's not trying to liberate anything. But his plan begins to unravel and it begins to unravel first with the survival of this youngest boy, Jotham. In verse 7, read about Jotham. In verse 7, when they told Jotham, he climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim, raised his voice, and he called to them, Listen to me, lords of Shechem, and may God listen to you. If we would go back into the Old Testament to chapter 11 of Deuteronomy and then again in chapter 27, Moses was instructing the people that when you enter the land of Canaan, when you're in there, you're going to go to Mount Gerizim and you're going to go to Mount Ebal and the, the Israelites are going to be in the valley. And you're going to read the law. And you're going to read the blessings of the law on Mount Gerizim and you're going to read the curses of the law on Mount Ebal. And it's an acoustic, uh, I guess, phenomena that you can hear. Um, uh, in the valley, you can actually hear what is being said on these two mountains. And so they would face each other, and they were reading loudly, and it was echoing down, and the people in the valley could hear. And so in Joshua chapter 8, we find out that they actually did do that. And so with that background of blessings on Mount Gerizim and curses on Mount Ebal, we find Jotham giving his message from Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing. In the Bible, it tells us that when the Jewish people read the, the law there, that they made burnt offerings to God on Mount Ebal. Why would you do it on Mount Ebal? Any idea? Why would that burnt offering be made on Mount Ebal? It's because of sin. But why would Jotham deliver his message from the place of blessing? Why would something like that happen? We're not going to take the time to read all of it, but what he begins to do, beginning in verse 7 all down through here, is... He pronounces this message, and it's in the form of uh, poetic language. And he basically says that there were these trees that uh, were seeking a king. And the trees are the people of Shechem. And they go to worthy suitors. They go to an olive tree, they go to a fig tree, they go to the grapevine. But all of these rejected the opportunity, and they said no. They refused to leave God's established order. And so the trees were forced to turn to bramble, to thorn bushes. And in the Old Testament, these thorn bushes were only used to kindle fire. They could barely provide any shade. But this is who they turned to to be their king. And of course, this is Abimelech. In verses 14 and 15, after they have 
approached him with this. It says, finally, all the trees said to the bramble, come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if you really are anointing me as king over you, come and find refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. What this is basically saying to those people is a pronouncement that Abimelech offers you very little protection and eventually he is going to destroy you. Consuming the cedars of Lebanon. It's a terrible pronouncement. But the reason he delivered it from Mount Gerizim is because God is going to judge. When we look at verses 16 through 20 down there, it opens up with him saying, hey, listen, lords of Shechem, and may God listen to you. Let's, let's look at what you've done. Let's let God take a, an examination of your behavior. Should you be in the place of blessing or in the place of curses? Let's just take a look at what you've done. Let God be the judge. He says, hey, if, in verse 16, he says, if, if, they, if they've acted faithfully and honestly in making Abimelech king, rejoice in Abimelech and may he also rejoice in you. But if not, may fire come from Abimelech and consume the lords of Shechem. So, you got the stepbrother, Abimelech. Those 70 brothers aren't ever going to let him be the king. He knows that. His mom doesn't even live where they live. Know how he wanted what they had. Enough to take it. Enough to murder his brothers for himself. There's some interesting words in this chapter. It talks about how the people in Shechem are just as guilty because when this horrible idea was proposed, they chose to strengthen, this is what it actually says, it says, they chose to strengthen his hands. And so this is why Jotham, this one surviving boy, is up here on this mountain. And he is obviously a godly man. Speaking on God's behalf. So we already see there's some really good parts to Gideon's heritage and some really bad. Well, let's read what's going to happen. It begins in verse 22. This is how everything unravels. When Abimelech had ruled over Israel for three years, that's all it took, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem. And they treated Abimelech deceitfully so that the crime against the 70 sons of Gideon might come to justice and their blood would be avenged on their brother Abimelech who killed them and on the lords of Shechem who had helped him kill his brothers. The lords of Shechem rebelled against him by putting people on the tops of the mountains to ambush and rob everyone who passed by them on the road. So this was reported to Abimelech. Here comes a new person, Gael, son of Ebed. He came with his brothers and crossed into Shechem and the lords of Shechem trusted him. So they went out to the countryside and harvested grapes from their vineyards. They trod the grapes and held a celebration. And then they went to the house of their God and as they ate and drank, they cursed Abimelech. 
Gel son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Isn't he the son of Gideon and isn't Zebel his officer? You are to serve the men of Hamer, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only these people were in my power, I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, Gather your army and come out. Verse 30, When Zibel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, son of Ebed, he was angry. And so he sent messengers secretly to Abimelech, and he said, Look, Gaul, son of Ebed, with his brothers, have come to Shechem and are turning the city against you. So tonight, you and the people with you are to come wait in an ambush in the countryside. Then get up early and at sunrise charge the city. When he and the people who are with him come out against you, do to, do to him whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the people with him got up at night and they waited in ambush for Shechem and four units. Gael son of Ebed went out and he stood at the entrance of the city in the gate. This is in the morning. And then Abimelech and the people who were with him got up from their ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebel, he said, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. But Zebel said to him, nah, it's the shadows of the mountains that just look like men to you. You can just imagine, he keeps watching, and he's like, it's actually materializing right before his eyes. He can see, oh, this is, this is army, they're coming. So he spoke again, verse 37, he says, Look, people are coming down from the central part of the land, and one unit is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. So with a grin, Zeppel replied, Where is your mouthing off now? You said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Aren't these the people you despise? Now go and fight them. So Gaul went out leading the lords of Shechem and fought against Abimelech. But Abimelech pursued him, and Gaul fled before him. Many wounded died as far as the entrance of the gate. Abimelech stayed in Arumah, and Zebul drove Gaul and his brothers from Shechem. The next day when the people went into the countryside, this was reported to Abimelech. And he took the people, divided them into three companies, and waited in ambush in the countryside. He looked, and the people were coming out of the city. So he arose against them and struck them down. Then Abimelech and the units that were with him rushed forward and took their stance at the entrance of the city gate. The other two units rushed against all who were in the countryside and struck them down. So Abimelech fought against the city that entire day, captured it, and killed the people who were in it. Then he tore down the city and sowed it with salt. He's not done yet. Verse 46, when all the lords of the tower of Shechem heard, they entered the inner chamber of the temple, and then it was reported to Abimelech that all of the lords of the tower, uh, lords of the tower of Shechem had gathered together. So it's the these cities, uh, if they weren't big enough to have a big walled city, they would have these towers, and they would run into the tower. They'd climb to the top and try to defend it from the top, and so this is where they're at. So Abimelech and all, verse 46, So Abimelech and all the people who were with him went up to Mount Zalman. Abimelech took his axe in his hand and he cut a branch from the trees. He picked up the branch, put it on his shoulder, and he said to the people who were with him, Hurry and do what you have seen me do. 
So each person, also, each person also cut his own branch and followed Abimelech. They put the branches against the inner chamber and set it on fire around the people. And all the people in the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes. They camped against it, captured it. There was a strong tower inside the city, and all the men and women and the lords of the city fled there. They locked themselves in and went up to the roof of the tower. And when Abimelech came to attack the tower, he approached its entrance to set it on fire. But a woman threw the upper portion of a millstone on Abimelech's head and fractured his skull. He quickly called his arm, armor bearer and he said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, or they'll say about me, a woman killed him. So his armor bearer thrust him through and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. In this way, the evil that Abimelech had done against his father by killing his 70 brothers, God turned back on him. And God also returned all the evil of the men of Shechem on their heads. So the curse of Jotham, son of uh, Gideon, came on them. That's a lot of reading. But you can see that after Abimelech served them for three years as the king, they'd had enough. Wished they could get rid of him. By, by now it had dawned on them that the whole carrot that they had been dangled was saying, you can, we will continue to reign. It's the ball's in our court now. We have control. And so they thought, well, let's get rid of Abimelech. And this guy named Gael, Gaul, he shows up and they decide to start following him. And Abimelech retaliates at that betrayal. And he kills everybody. You know, if Abimelech hadn't died, I don't know what he would be king of. He'd killed everybody. He destroyed all of the cities that he was serving over. And in the beginning, we really were focused in on Hamer the Hivite and his descendants, the father of Shechem, how these were Canaanite people. But here at the end of this, we find out that when Abimelech was dead, the men of Israel returned home. The men of Israel were right there alongside of them the whole time. We just couldn't tell the difference. In closing, I'd like to make three observations about what we've just read. The first one has to do with our sin nature. Our sin nature uh, is very evil and it has no loyalty. And we see that here in the example, the very good, bad example of Abimelech. Our sin nature has no loyalties. The problem with most bad examples is the contrast because we have the tendency of seeing somebody else that's really bad and then walking away from it thinking how good we are. We remember in the Bible that a Pharisee and a tax collector both went into the temple to pray. And the tax collector was praying and the Pharisee was praying. But the Pharisee would stand and he was looking up while he was praying. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes and he was striking his chest. And he was saying, God, turn your wrath away from me. I'm a sinner. 
But the Pharisee's prayer was, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, greedy and righteous, adulterers. This is what happens when we look at these bad examples and we don't see ourselves. We see everybody else, but not ourselves. The truth is that all of us share the same sin nature. Abimelech's sin nature is the same one that you have. It's the same one that I have. Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, fill in the blank. We all have the same sin nature. It's not, Gene doesn't have a little bit less and Chloe's got a little bit more. It's, we all have this filthy sin nature. And we saw it in its raw form in this passage. Now, why doesn't our nature play out to its true potential all of the time or ever? They're, con they're containing factors. You know, you have your conscience. You have society and the consequences that are with society. And I believe there's restraints of God. But at the core, we have a sin nature that is very evil. And so that means that we are evil. You know, psychology tells you you were born with a blank slate and everything built upon it. You know, your environment, your parents, and your experiences. It does form who you are as a person, and I'll give you that. But you don't start out clean as a whistle. You start out a child of wrath with a horrible sin nature. Jeremiah 17 says that our heart is, is desperately wicked. So if I'm telling you that we're evil, it's the Bible that's saying that. It's not me. We are evil. It, it makes the word sinner sound good. I would rather be a sinner than evil. If you don't like hearing that, you should know, we should be reminded that this is the way Jesus sees us. As evil. Now granted, this is before His righteousness is imputed to, him, to us. You know, when, when we put our faith in Christ, our sins are nailed on the cross. They are imputed on Him on the cross. And His righteousness is imputed to us. Ascribed to us, given to us. I've still got my sin nature. I'm not free of it yet. And so I'm still, I have been born again. There's, there's an inheritance I have that's, that's permanent. It's eternal. I have a new nature. But I've still got the old one, and the old one is really bad. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, He said, What father among you, if your son asked for... Uh, a fish, you would give him a snake instead. What dad would do that? You know, it's Christmas time and your, your, your little girl wants a doll or your son wants this Lego thing or this video game. And you wrap it up in a present and then you open it and it's this King Cobra. You know, what person would ever do that? What father would ever do that to their kid? That's Jesus' point. He goes on to say, or if he asks for an egg, will, will he give him a scorpion? Listen to this important thing, because Jesus is trying to teach us how we can pray to the Father. He says, 
He says, if you get that, if you understand what I'm saying, if you realize that, you know, no dad does that to his kids. If you understand that, he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him? He's saying, you guys are bad. And you know this. God's not bad at all. He's the, he's the best. He's the greatest. He's wonderful. All you got to do is ask Him. Pray to God. He can't wait to help you. He can't wait to take care of you. This was His point, but I'm emphasizing the fact that Jesus said, if you get that, He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him? It's Luke chapter 11. Now why is this helpful for us to realize about ourselves? Why is this something we want to be reminded of? Because it brings humility and it reminds us that sin is not our friend and that it seeks to take control of us and destroy us. Sin permeated this man's life and it destroyed him. And the other people who chose to follow him, it destroyed them too. Sin is not our friend. The second point is sowing and reaping, and that's basically what we saw happen here. What we sow, we reap. It's the picture of your life being a garden. What are you planting in your garden? God wants us to renew our commitment to Him every day. Every day, renew that commitment. When you mess up, you've got to ask for forgiveness, confess that sin, agree with God about it, confess it, ask Him to forgive you, and renew your commitments to Him every single day. And to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Coming to church on Sunday morning and praying, being around other Christians, reading the Bible, these things renew our mind. It takes the, the bad things that we've put in our mind, we're washing our minds clean, we're getting rid of the things that we've seen and done and thought about. Renew your mind. Focus on the Scriptures. Present your body as a holy, living sacrifice. Make a full commitment to God. And let your mind be renewed. Thinking on the good things. That's a good garden. And finally, God is sovereign. Because we do reap what we sow, God is the other side of the coin. The reason we reap what we sow is because God is sovereign. In our passage here, we see that God saved Jotham. And Jotham was a godly man, a God-fearing descendant of Gideon. So there was a heritage there that's good. And we notice that his message was one that was above the events. It was like an observer. He was speaking on God's behalf who, who exacts justice. It shows us that, that God is above our events. He is distinct from creation. He's not pulled like you and I are from everything. He's not dependent upon oxygen. You know, he doesn't get sleepy. You know, God is sovereign over all things. And we see here that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. This demon had a green light. I can't tell you how many times different people 
have came into the city, and I've seen this happen where different groups or people would come into Cincinnati, and they would try to they would try their best to start trouble, to to start a protest, to start a riot, and it would just fizzle out. It would never go anywhere. It's because they didn't have a green light. It couldn't gain momentum. We see here in this passage that everything ends up with God's desired outcome. The mark that you leave in your life is eternal because people are eternal. So everything you do matters. How you influence people. How you choose to live your life. Last Sunday we talked about access prayer. And it was in light of If, if you look over your life and there's things you wish you'd done differently and there's people you've influenced negatively and things aren't going great, maybe your kids are messing up, your grandkids, or you had a bad relationship with your neighbor, all of these things. God wants us to be conscientious about the mess we leave, or the good things that we leave. He wants us to care about that and for it to be a priority in our life to leave a godly heritage. And if, if everything isn't going perfect, actually she showed us some things to, to do about how to pray to God about it, to clean, because God can clean things up. He can make things better. What was it, a, a good assessment? And uh, this is this is like school now. We've got to remember the three things. It was you got to make a good assessment, and you have to ask him, and you have to do it the right way. And so, I remember when I became a Christian, and uh, I had been so bad. And so I had so many people to go apologize to. I had to, people, I had to pay people back money, you know. And I look at my, uh, my job where I work and I'm around people. I'm sure you could say the same thing. I've been around some of the same people for, for 25 years, 26 years now. And they haven't changed. They're still doing the same things, still living the same way. You know, life just kind of passes us by. It's here for a moment. I think the Bible tells us that our life is like a vapor. It's here for a moment and then it passes away. It's like mist. It just evaporates. Life is short. Wesley was talking about some guy who, this guy, we don't know if it's really true or not, but he, he sold his soul to the devil so he could be the best guitar player. Well, that guy's dead now. That didn't work out too well. Our heritage is critical. It's very important. And so if, if, uh, if there's something that you would like to see changed, 
You're the one who has to change it. You're the one who has to go to that person and apologize. It's better to, it's better to apologize, isn't it? It's better to ask for forgiveness. It's better to try to mend a fence. And if uh, there are people in your life that you really care about and they're not living for God, you can pray about it. You can pray for them. You know, you can be in a nursing home and praying about something to God because God's not in the nursing home. You know, something so simple as praying. It can change the world. It can change their life. And it all begins with you and I as Christians recognizing how important it is for us to be a good example, a good influence, and to do our best to leave a godly heritage.